As was mentioned earlier, certainly we are thankful for the opportunity to assemble, to gather in the way that we are this, this Sunday afternoon. The first day of the week holds such a special thought for all of us, and yet as we exhibit our thanksgiving unto God, we assemble in these ways, and it really promotes and prompts a week that begins in what better way than this? It would be fair, I suppose, to say at the very outset of the lesson tonight that the title on the wall behind me brings to the forefront the mention of Plan B. But Gary pointed out right before the services began that every song we've sung so far begins with the letter A. And that'll even be true of the invitation song, I noticed. Somewhat interesting. But I hope that as we reflect on Plan B, that we will nonetheless be motivated to view this in such an appreciation that it can really be a genuine blessing to each of us. Because without a doubt, Plan B comes our way more often than what we might like to admit. This opening slide is one that will begin our discussion in the following form. Isn't it rather commonplace to have a particular sense or direction or a particular set of concepts related to where you want life to take you? All of us are this way. We have a vision. Maybe we proceed through years of education and schooling with the thought that I'll get a good job and perhaps have a nice family with a good home, a piece of land, and I'll live out the remainder of my days in comfort, in convenience, with everything more or less in order. When perhaps those grandiose plans, as frequently as they might well come our way, they're often very directed and smaller versions of this. Perhaps for a week or for a month, we simply have this viewpoint in mind that we will organize, orchestrate, and proceed with regard to what we envision would be a very convenient and nice set of arrangements. I suppose we're just almost programmed this way. But yet the fact is that all of those nice plan A's, they just don't always materialize. Events happen. A doctor's report, a company downsizes, other affairs in, in terms of things in life can make dramatic differences. And those things that one formerly had wished simply cannot then be the case. Plan B has to then be considered. What about plan B? As we all know, there are occasions in life when those who are forced to pursue plan B suddenly find such disappointment, dejection, perhaps even a sense of despair that often will bring it to the point where life from that point forward is often just a shell of what it once was. Tonight, what about reacting to plan B when it happens to you and me? And it almost certainly will. How do we react and what should be perhaps some basic thoughts from the Word of God that can at least be a little bit helpful? You and I know that within the Word of God are the attitudes and the addresses and the things that would be needful in every circumstance. And so tonight, what about devoting the remainder of our time to reflecting on reacting to plan B? When that becomes what we're forced to consider, why don't we look at some Bible characters how did they react to plan B? And isn't it true that if we give thought to these who are so highly regarded for their disposition, for their approach, and for their standard and conduct in life, and if they reacted to plan B in a particular way, 
then perhaps that would be something strongly to be considered by us as well. Let's start in the book of Genesis. None other than Noah. In Genesis chapters 5 and following, we come face to face with this rather gigantic figure that we've come to call Noah. Now, he wasn't gigantic in terms of physical stature or size necessarily, but we find a man who himself had such a disposition. In fact, why don't I start that discussion, and you can see on the slide some of the thoughts that I would invite you to consider. When you and I first encounter him, at least in the main, we find a man at the tender age of 500. Now that alone would speak volumes. We might well suppose that by that time in life, you have crossed the major threshold of heavy and rigorous efforts or activities. Maybe from this time forward, it's coasting upon the accomplishments and achievements of days gone by. Maybe by this point, and it would appear that Noah was at least somewhat well-to-do. Perhaps one could imagine that in the midst of a world so wicked as his world was, Genesis 6 verse 5, so much so that the thoughts of men's heart was only evil continually, maybe it would be easy to understand why not just go off to a secluded place, live by yourself, with your family, and make the best of the situation you can. Maybe plan A would have to some degree included thoughts like that. For after all, it would seem as though the matters of his life would have put him in that kind of situation. Isn't it true that some of the things we read about him certainly lead one to think that convenience could have been his lot? But look at what happened in Genesis chapter 6. The God of heaven brought a message to him, and it was nothing like what I just noted. Noah, construct an ark. But Noah perhaps could have answered, where's my army of helpers? This ark that you've commissioned me to build is 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, 45 feet tall. I can only use gopher wood to build it. Where am I going to get that much gopher wood? And who's going to help me cut it? And who's going to help me plane the planks? And who's going to help me construct this massive shell of an, of, of, that we call the ark? My strong suspicion is that at that point, plan A was out the window. We find a man who has been given this task. And to some degree, it was a gargantuan one. And yet, you'll notice on that slide... You and I could easily ask a lot of things. I would suggest that with all those who are gathered in this assembly, if we had all the power tools available to us that the modern day has, and we had some company providing the lumber, it still would be a hard task. Noah didn't have any of it. We don't know how far he had to travel to find this much gopher wood. We don't know what he had to do to make sure it was taken to the point where the ark was actually constructed. But be all of that as it may, we find not the first question in Noah's mind, not the first statement did he make calling into thought whether or not God's way was a wise one. All that we find stated in verse 22 of this chapter is this, Thus did Noah, according to all that God commanded him, so did he. It would seem that he had a mind very open to plan B. As far as we know, he'd never even seen it rain. 
And yet, he accepted at face value what God declared, and he acted in light of that information he had been given. And he did so in faithful and trustworthy obedience. Wouldn't it be fair to say that this person, this man that we call Noah, from that point onward to this day, has been a tremendous figure. And Hebrews eleven seven will include his name in the honor roll of faith. A man whom God had in fact given that information, and the text there says, by faith, Noah constructed an ark to the saving of himself and his house. Isn't it amazing then that the openness that he had to plan B was something that was a powerful and a dramatic figure in his mind. Today, when you and I are faced with a plan B, let's not lose hope. For notice, the plan B worked out rather well for Noah. He had to spend some time aboard an ark. But you'll notice he repopulated, he and his sons and their families repopulated this earth. And look at what has happened. His name to this day thus is synonymous with faithful and obedient consideration to God. When you and I are faced with plan B, let's not lose hope that our considerations have been fully dashed. It's just that there's an opportunity and a thoroughfare through which the faith and direction toward God can perhaps even be more evident than it might have been before. What about a second Bible example of a person who was faced with plan B? This time, we don't have to travel very far in the Old Testament. We encounter a man named Moses. The scene surrounding his birth is a timeless one, isn't it? The particular matter that had been declared by the Pharaoh, all the baby boys was to be put to death, the baby boys of the Israelites, that is. And yet Moses' parents... They, you see, had a different thought, a different intent, and they had a very strong connection to their baby boy. As you and I well remember, he was in that ark of bulrushes that was floating on the Nile River, and Pharaoh's daughter came to wash herself. She heard the baby, found this babe as it was, and she adopted him. She took him into the royal household. Might you and I remember thus to what Moses had in terms of access? He had immediate access to the finest education the ancient world had to offer. He had immediate access to the finest clothing, the finest food, and all the riches of the royal household. He had it all. That's the kind of life that Moses lived in those years of his life. And not only that, it was that that could well have been his because after all, as he reached manhood, adulthood if you please, he could have enjoyed all the comforts of having a host of slaves working for him. He could have had all the conveniences attached to the ancient life of the royals. If you and I think that royals today have it made... As far as I'm able to tell from the writings recording matters of ancient history, the royals of the ancient world had it far better even than that. As at least one reference to that thought, may I point all of us at least briefly to the the book of Esther. Do you remember as the book of Esther began? We come face to face with this observation. There was an ancient king who had a feast for 180 days. 
a half a year. Can you imagine the amount of food that would be required for a feast like that? Can you imagine the productivity and the provision that would be necessary to feed a whole town for that many days? That was the ancient kings. Moses had access to this kind of affluence, to this kind of abundance. The time came when Moses saw some injustice with regard to his own Hebrews that were living there in Egypt. We readily notice that Moses took the life of one of those Egyptians. And furthermore, we notice he fled for his life and we soon find him on the outskirts of Midian. Remarkably, amazingly, a burning bush is then before him. And he is given a commission. Moses, go to Egypt and bring my people out. I can well imagine plan A has long since been gone. He now is face to face with plan B. Here is the God of heaven commissioning him to go back to the very land he had fled. He had put to death, you see, one of the Egyptians, and no doubt he perhaps had considered his own life would perhaps be under somewhat threat. And yet, Moses has a decision to make. Do I follow the things that God has told me? Or do I stay here in Midian, isolated, secluded, perhaps able to live at least some kind of a life of a meager amount of comfort? Plan A is gone. What did he do with plan B? You'll notice on that slide, Exodus 5, beginning in verse 1, details that Moses went. He headed back to Egypt. And as he went, he, of course, rather directly came before the Pharaoh and urged, let my people go. Let my people go. The Pharaoh at first was resistant. And we well remember it was for several chapters he resisted. But ultimately... After the plagues were brought and the final plague, the tenth one was completed, we remember that the people did exit, but who was their earthly leader? Moses. He was the one recognized as carrying or exemplifying that authority of God. Not only that, we remember he led them through years of wilderness wandering to the very brink of the Jordan River. Moses was their leader. He had mediated between them and God on more than one occasion. Could we pause to ask, how did plan B work out for Moses? Did it work out well? If he had stayed in Egypt, I wonder if he'd have gone to heaven. Isn't that an interesting question? His parents, particularly his mother it would seem, instilled in him a consideration of the Hebrew way of life and the understanding of who he was. We would hope that that would have shone through. But you and I know that as he followed the direction of God... He was one spoken of one more time in the honor roll of faith in Hebrews 11. In these kind of words, he chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Plan B, I think we'd say, worked out fairly well. Because won't the redeemed of all the ages sing the song of Moses and the Lamb? Revelation 15.3 Maybe at this point we're beginning to think that plan B may not always be so bad. It may not be what we first would have chosen. It may not be what we first would have dreamt. But as long as God's in the picture, plan B 
can often work out to our eternal benefit and quite often a blessing for those whom we're able to influence. What about a third Bible example? Let's roll forward in the Old Testament to Daniel. The book of Daniel, we find that 12th chapter book as the last of the major prophets. And in that book of Daniel, we again encounter a man who lost plan A. It was forcibly taken from him. I might say there are times that you and I lose our plan A because of bad choices we make. It wasn't any choice Daniel made. It was forced upon him. Let's develop the details and draw some lessons. As the book of Daniel begins, we encounter the circumstance in which the people of God had been taken into captivity. In fact, Daniel was among the group in the year 605 B.C. As far as the textual evidence indicates, he was a young man at the time. We don't know how old, maybe 16, perhaps 17 or 18 years of age. Can you imagine it? He had grown up in the Hebrew faith and he loved the Hebrew way of life. No doubt he had often given careful thought to that which transpired at the temple and that which took place by way of his service and that of his loved ones to God. As he adored that place and cherished God's blessing on the people due to that, can you imagine what it would have been like to be an eyewitness account, to watch the Babylonian armies come into the city, to burn that temple to the ground, to haul off into captivity many loved ones, and to put to death a lot of other ones. For all we know, Daniel may have witnessed his own parents put to death. He may have seen them directly killed because they're too old to make the journey back to Babylon. But of course, those that were younger, those that were stronger, those that were capable, they were taken back. We have in this book four, in particular, four young men. We typically recognize them as Daniel and then his three friends that we read about also in chapter 1, verses 6 and following. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Isn't it interesting as you give thought to them with me? Think about the kind of people they were. The chapter 1, chapter 1 in Daniel reminds us they were skilled. They were also very bright. And they were such that they were schooled in the Babylonian way of things. And after all, the Babylonians would not have put just any old Hebrews into such a school. Those that they saw with potential those that they saw with capability, those that they saw that could be a particular blessing in some way to the Babylonian Empire, they were selected. Obviously, Daniel was very bright. How high could he have risen in stature in Jerusalem? But once the city was destroyed, that was gone. His life would never be the same. I would offer you one more thing. Once he was brought to Babylon... Did you notice who was given care of him? Verses 6 and 7 detail that there was a prince of the eunuchs that watched over him. It would appear that he was castrated when he was taken to Babylon. I suspect that as a young Jewish boy, he looked forward to getting married. He looked forward to having a family. And if castration was his lot, all of that was gone. Could we not agree that Daniel had to face plan B? 
and it was forced upon him without any question from him at all. And yet, as we arrive at the book of Daniel, verse number 8 will quickly tell us, chapter number 1, that he purposed in his heart not to defile himself. Though he may have suffered these things we've described, and though he may have come so far in this wicked and foreign land, he nonetheless was connected in such a way that plan B was something he was very much open to. As you read through the book of Daniel, we notice that for years he would serve in a high-ranking capacity as that one who was in fact a servant to the God of heaven. He not only served in the Babylonian Empire, but he would later rise to high stature in the Persian Empire. For decades, he was a devoted servant to the God of heaven while serving in the palace of a foreign land. I wonder how many he influenced for good. I wonder how many he brought to appreciate that there is a God in heaven. Later, when Cyrus would make that dramatic decree permitting the children of Israel to return, does it not seem highly likely that the influence of Daniel had at least been a part that ultimately brought the seed to make that happen? What about Daniel and plan B? I've asked you to appreciate in Ezekiel 14, verse 14, we have a very high commendation of Daniel. In fact, as God addressed the captives in Babylon, He pointed out this interesting statement, Though Noah and Daniel and Job were here, they would not be able to save anybody but themselves. My people are so hardened, my people, you see, are so stubbornly resistant to my will, God said, that even if these great figures of faith were here, Noah, Daniel, and Job, they wouldn't be able to save anybody but themselves. Could you and I there notice that Daniel is placed in the same company with Noah and also with Job? That's pretty high company. Wouldn't you like your name to be mentioned alongside of those two? I'd sure like my name to be listed among that company. And yet we find that Daniel was open to plan B and throughout, as far as we can tell, what great faith was exhibited by him. Later, he would spend some time in a lion's den, Daniel chapter 6, because of his commitment to the very God whom he had served and who had allowed him to be brought into circumstances like this. Perhaps this lesson. Sometimes our plan B circumstances are very much different than our liking. Surely Daniel wouldn't have highly thought of castration or of these other things, and yet he didn't give up on God. And he remained faithful to God despite the circumstances. I hope that's a good lesson for us. When plan B comes our way, may we not allow ourselves to be so dashed in hope that we lose sight of the ultimate and final goal to leave this life obedient to God so that heaven could be our home. These three that we've studied so far, Noah and Moses and Daniel. What about number four? Another person who had to face a plan B. This time, let's go to the New Testament. Peter. We know this gentleman named Cephas so very well, and so many reflections of his life come before our thinking. Maybe somewhat quickly we could mention only these. 
we first encounter him, at least in Matthew's gospel account in chapter 4. We find here a fisherman on the Sea of Galilee. And from later records concerning his fishing efforts, he was no doubt highly skilled. He had devoted many a day and many a night in the skill of a fisherman on the Sea of Galilee. Peter was a married man. We, in fact, remember Jesus healed Peter's mother in Matthew chapter 8. But surely we can say this, just as surely as these thoughts can easily be noted, it would appear that he had a pretty good business. He, alongside of Andrew, his brother, they had a business whereby they were able, you see, to provide for themselves, to provide for their family. And when Jesus called, how easy might it have been to say, I've got work to do. There is fish to be caught. My wife and my family need to be provided for. No doubt he had often devoted himself to those efforts, and no doubt it had often been successful. Quite often when we have enjoyed success, it's hard to turn away from it. We like to continue that success, don't we? We all do. And yet Jesus at that very moment said, Come, follow me, and I'll make you to be fishers of men. The text simply says, He left all, they left all, and followed Jesus. That took a great deal of conviction. It took a great deal, you see, and notice how quickly plan A has now been changed. Maybe Peter had often thought, I'll devote my full working career to a livelihood of fishing on the Galilean Sea. And in so doing, I not only will provide for myself, but I can in fact live the kind of life that I've always known. You see, it was comfortable. We all know a lot about that. Things we've always done, we're familiar with it. And suddenly Jesus turned that upside down. I'm going to make you a preacher. And not only that, an apostle. And you're going to be one of the foundation stones of the church. Peter had to react to plan B. I wonder what he did. We've already noted that he left all on that occasion. And on a number of other statements we find that he made in John chapter 6 when Jesus had preached a particularly hard sermon and lots of his disciples turned and walked away from him. The text says that Jesus turned and asked the ones that remained this question, Will ye also go away? And Peter's the one that answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life, John 6, verse 68. Peter, you see, had not walked away, but he had continued. And plan B apparently was becoming much more acceptable to him. When Jesus prayed all night long and selected those apostles the next morning, and Peter was the first name in the list, Peter was one that had been chosen, one selected. You'll notice on that slide that this same Peter we encounter many other times. In John 21, for example, this time the Lord has already been crucified, and furthermore, He's been resurrected. But there you can imagine the distance Peter had gone fishing again. He'd gone back to what he knew about. But isn't it interesting? There was a man on the shore. Peter didn't immediately recognize him. Apparently none of the others did either. 
But in fact, this one on the shore gave some instructions. Cast your net on the other side. They did. And although they'd fished and caught, again, a very different amount, they took up a lot. And isn't it interesting? Peter, you see, recognized him. And in the conversation that followed, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? And every time, oh yes, I love you. And he used a different Greek word than Jesus did. And the Lord said this, Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. And Peter was the one blessed on that Acts chapter 2 day to present in majesty he and the other 11 the, the first gospel sermon. Isn't it amazing? Plan B turned out pretty well. We read about this one who wrote a couple of New Testament books. We read about this one who gave his life in such a way that he was a powerful figure for the goodness of God's truth. He was a central figure of the first 12 chapters of the book of Acts. When it came to the conversion of Cornelius, Peter was the one that did the preaching. When it came to the events surrounding Acts chapter 4, Peter had a critical factor in it. Plan B worked out pretty well. May I suggest that we too can be open to plan B like he was. And we can realize that God's tomorrow is always better than our today. It's always going to be that way. It won't always mean that the comfort and conveniences of life will be what we would have wanted. But what it means is in our faithful obedience and in our conviction of the things of God, we are assured assured in the Bible that things will work out that well. The fifth and final one will be this one. What about Paul? I suppose that as we reflect upon Paul, it's easy enough to remember the state of his life. He had grown up a Hebrew. In fact, a convicted Hebrew. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews, he would say in Hebrews chapter 3. He was a Pharisee. He was an Israelite. He even knew that he was of the tribe of Benjamin. It was such that he had risen above many that were his equals. Galatians chapter 1 verse 13. You see, there were very few on earth that could hold a candle to Paul. This man known as Saul, you see, was bright, brilliant. He could conduct a debate with anybody. In fact, so passionate was he about the Hebrew way of life, he had letters that permitted him to go to Damascus and arrest people that disagreed with him. He had the power of the Sanhedrin court and all the character of Judaism with him. There's no doubt he could have given his voice, and he did so in Acts 26. When he gave the word, you and I remember Stephen was such that his life was taken. This man known as Saul was the one who held the garments of those that stoned him. But to say all of that is to say that just imagine the future that he had. He could have risen to great stature. He was schooled at the feet of Gamaliel, one of the most highly regarded rabbis in all of Jewish history. He was born in Tarsus. And in with all of those things at his advantage, who knows how, could, how highly he might have risen. And yet something happened on the road to Damascus. The very one that he thought was, a, was an imposter spoke to him.
Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Acts 9, verses 3 and following. And the very one whom he did not believe in, the very one who opposed every fiber of what he thought was true, was now challenging him to think differently. I'm Jesus whom thou persecutest. It's hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And from that point forward, plan A was gone. He may have thought that his whole future was planned out. I will become a powerful and notable and influential figure in all of Hebrew in, in all the Hebrew faith. And it's clear he had already accomplished much along that line. But on the road to Damascus, that was gone. Because now he had a decision to make. I know that the one whom I thought was not real is real. And he was the Son of God, and he still is. And from that point forward, we soon learn that this man would give his life in open defiance of what he once had preached against. In Galatians 1, verses 22 and 23, he himself admitted that even folks were saying he preaches now the faith he once tried to destroy. Plan A, you see, was no longer considered at all, but plan B was. And we find this man who would give his life to plant congregations, to preach the gospel, to live in open consideration of truth. He said, I've become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. 1 Corinthians 9, verses 21 to 23. How much do you and I owe today to Him? The planting of congregations, the planting of the seed that He did. He wrote half the New Testament. <laughs> Think about the blessing we have of what He did. Plan B turned out pretty well for Paul, don't you think? He later could say, I fought a good fight. I finished my course. I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all of them also that love is appearing. I would think that we probably would be happy with plan B in his case, wouldn't you? Sometimes, as we close this lesson... We are faced with those matters in life. Sometimes they are of our own bad choices, but sometimes they are not. They come our way and they are not of our choosing. And when plan B, when plan B comes, I hope that we can react like Noah did. I hope we can have the fortitude that Moses had. I hope that we can have the attitude and also the consideration that was characteristic of the life of Daniel. I hope that we, like Peter would be happy then to follow plan B, knowing that the Master is the one leading. And just like Paul, that we would be happy then to follow in the footsteps of the one that died for us. And as long as we know that we're faithful to Him, plan B can work out rather well. From our perspective in eternity, it can often be a very sweet thing. It has been in these cases. I know the world often casts a very strong frown upon plan B because it can often be so different. But when it comes to these people we've studied tonight, they seemingly were very open to plan B and made the very best of it because they knew that they were in the hollow of the hand of one greater than they. May you and I keep that in mind too.
And just like we noted in the lesson text in Isaiah 46, 10, isn't it true that God knows the end from the beginning? That text is one that was read earlier tonight in our hearing. From everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. And a psalmist, in an interesting twist, in Psalm 46.10, we are admonished to remember this, Be still and know that I am God. Tonight, as we close this lesson, if there would be anyone in this assembly who perhaps is not a faithful Christian, maybe at one time you were and you knew the blessing of that kind of life, don't you yearn for it? Don't you miss it? Because you had at that time a comfort and a confidence that transcended anything this life has to offer. Because isn't it still true, the peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus our Lord. Philippians 4, 7. If you'd like to come back to that status and state in life, the Lord can put you there. Won't you rush back to His side? If you repent of sins and confess them, we are promised that He will put you back to that place and we'd be happy to pray for you. If you've never become a Christian though, what are you waiting for? Don't you want to have the kind of legacy that these gentlemen that we've studied about tonight can put in your position? Because you see, you can lead your family to the Lord. You can be that faithful husband and wife, that faithful father and mother. You can be a faithful grandparent. And one that in the midst of plan A's that don't work out can make a manifestation of a plan B and make that of it that will be an eternal blessing to you and to those that you love. Tonight, if we can help you in that regard, won't you believe in Jesus, repent of your sins, confess His name, and be baptized? And we'd be delighted to be an assistant and to be a witness of the greatness of that kind of set of things. If we can help you tonight, won't you come while together we stand and while we sing?